Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful in Canada and around the world. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with not Bruce McCurdy, but Adam Scorgi. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you here. Uh, Adam Scorgi, in case you don't know, is a, well, frankly, he's a world famous producer uh, of uh, documentaries. Uh, who works out of Edmonton, Alberta, and he's done documentaries on um, the you know the whole legalization of marijuana movement, on uh, a hockey doc- documentary called Ice Guardians, and another called Coco on Grant Fuhrer's uh, career. He's now working on another one, so we're going to talk to Adam today about that. So, what is your latest? Uh, what's your latest project? Well, today, episode one of our game, the the Road to uh, 2021 World Juniors, just released on Hockey Canada's website and on TELUS. Uh, and then episode two and three will be on the following Thursdays. Uh, it was a interesting project that Tyler Hines uh, brought me in on. Um, he'd done a couple other, he'd followed the tournament previous years. And then this year it reached out because we'd connected in the past and just helped each other, you know, give each other guidance and stuff like that. Something that I had mentioned to you before, a lot of producers don't like to do. They seem to feel like if I help you, somehow that takes away from me. I, I have been always trying to break that in the industry. So, and it, it paid it forward. Tyler then called me and said, Adam, I'd like to bring you and your team on. We're financed from TELUS. We want to make this year's even bigger and badder. And uh, we, I, of course, an opportunity to do another hockey story and work with Team Canada. I jumped on it and then COVID made things much more difficult to to accomplish that so we had to adjust but i think the finished product you got to watch episode one and episode two and three get even more compelling i think turned out fantastic for what you know given the circumstances these young men in the tournament was put under and what we had to do uh i'm really really proud of the finished product let's just talk briefly about your own uh experience doing hockey you've done a couple hockey documentaries why why are you drawn to the the subject adam I don't know. Originally, when I did Ice Guardians, it was because I went to school with some of the tough guys, and I just thought the element of self-policing and enforcement and stuff was just a fascinating, like, human behavior experiment, you know, in a sport, and how even in a professional sport, like, human nature was rising to the surface of protection and violence and the high speed, and and then in that, I just fell in love with the game. My my daughter started playing, you know, hockey and really got into it, and it's become very competitive, and you know, as you know, played for you, David, a few years ago. And that's, I think, I think that was the year she really, really fell in love with it. Uh, you know, overcame a little bit adversity in herself that year. And, and from there, I just love the stories and the players. I'm, 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 I wish at times I wasn't such a fan because it can be disappointing when you're a diehard fan, especially of the team that we both follow. Uh, but yeah, I love hockey stories. And I think it's, you know, it's still a sport on a global scale, it doesn't get as much recognition as many others. So, uh, you know, I always like to be able to tell stories of there because I think it's, uh, you know, it's the only one that's played on a foreign ice surface with razor blades on your feet. So it's a, there's definitely uniqueness to hockey that no other sport has. And why Grant Fear? Why did you pick that story? Uh, Grant Fear came to me. My executive producer, Don Metz, had known Grant for years. And obviously, I'm a big Oilers fan. I grew up, you know, in Edmonton as in the 80s and the heydays and, and followed them through the dark days. And now it's kind of kind of the bright days again with McDavid and, and Dreisaitl. So getting an opportunity to work with Grant was, you know, he was one of the guys, arguably probably the most iconic goalie when you were in your basement pretending to make big saves and stuff. Like he could arguably be the guy that you tried to imitate. Uh, so when I got an opportunity to work with Grant, I just, I jumped at that opportunity, especially once we found out 
you know, that the story hadn't been revealed, uh, you know, where it was really his own admittance that really got him, you know, and they were looking at a lifetime ban. When you look at what guys are doing now <laughs> in the league and what how they are there to support guys instead of banning them, I thought it was a fascinating angle. And then once you get to meet Grant, actually, he called me today. We become good friends outside of it. It was uh, it was an honor to be able to tell his story. So I, I jumped at the opportunity to do that. Now, when you mimicked Grant there, Adam, did you raise the correct hand to, to make no, the save? No, I think that I raised the wrong hand. <laughs> that's just like it was easier for me, where it was like, that's, yeah, he's, I, I raised the wrong hand. <laughs> that was one of the things that made him unique. Yeah, well, at the time, that was very rare. And he actually, like, just learning things about, I mean, that was just that time period. But he's like, they didn't even make right-handed gloves then. I had to, like, shift them myself and use odd-hand gloves. And I was like, what? What do you mean they didn't make them? He's like, they didn't make them. Like, they would just tell you, like, oh, no, if you don't play with that hand, you're not being a goalie. And then even to find out he didn't have his first real goalie coach until he played for Buffalo. I was like, what? You'd already won five Stanley Cups? And he's like, yeah. He's like, you just they just put you in there and figured it out. He's like, Slats put me in with a tennis ball machine and shot tennis balls at me and said, figure it out. Like, he's like, you really didn't have, like, now the breakdown and the – you know, the analysis of everything is insane, but he's like, we didn't have any of that when like, you just went and figured it out. That's astonishing. eh? Yeah. Although on a lot of minor hockey teams, the coaches do not how to know how to work with the goalies at all. And as a matter I mean, that can, I mean, yeah, unfortunately you still, yeah, you still see that we're, we're really good friends with a, with a goalie parent and uh, Riley's one of her best buds, another girl named Riley that we call Rue and, they're always like, oh, glad all you guys are getting development. Well, the goalie's just the shooting gallery out there, and there's no correction in anything. And I was like, well, isn't that still good for them? They're like, there's only so much you can work on hand and eye, right? Like, you do have to get work <laughs> on positioning. And they forget about the goalie a lot. It's, uh, it's something that is I've only made aware having become friends with goalie parents, but how often the goalie's kind of just left out there to just get shot at and figure it out. Yeah, as a coach, a minor hockey coach, I hang my head. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing to say about that. <laughs> you know, Grant Fear often comes to mind. For me, he comes to mind because when I'm seeing, when, when the older goalies are playing really well this year, usually with Mike Smith, sometimes with Koskinen, there's a feeling as the game goes along that they're not going to get beaten again in that game, that they're so dialed in. And it's it can be in a tight, a big game, a tight game, where the Oilers really need goaltending. And, it's, and it, it doesn't happen that much, but there's been a few times when it's happened with Smith. And I always, I always refer to that as getting the Grant Fuhr feeling. Because when I was a fan in the 80s and Grant was on his game in the playoffs, you'd get this immense sense of uh, satisfaction and relief before the fact that they're not scoring on Grant Fuhr. They're not going to get another goal by Grant Fuhr. He is so dialed in. He's going to make every big save uh, down the stretch. And he did again and again and again so the grand fear feeling man i love it when i get it and uh it still comes it's mike smith is bringing it on he's bringing back he's and, and mike you know mike I, I i would totally agree with that and mike smith at times is almost being like because grant was he's pretty wild and he would take chances and you're seeing mike smith it's it's almost gone back a little bit where now it's so analytical and they re, they they watch so much video on guys and know their habits that it's almost like you're seeing guys like Mike Smith being like, man, they got so much footage on me. I'm going to do some reckless stuff and try to figure it out. And <laughs> he's been doing it. He's been playing. He's, I mean, for his age and everything, he's looked fantastic in some of these games. He's really, you know, bailed out. Like even in that Toronto game that didn't end right in the overtime. I mean, Smith 
he made like five or six saves where I was like, oh, that's a goal. And then it wasn't. And I was like, oh, that's a And then he kind of stole the momentum there for a bit, right? And you, you saw that in a few games with Smith this year. He's really stepped up. And I, I, I get exactly that same feeling that Fuhrer had where you're just like, you're, you're not going to beat him tonight. You're going to have to get an ugly one or some weird one because you're not going to beat him on a regular shot. He's going to have it. That's it. That's what it came down to. They would have to uh, get a deflection. I first had that actually in the 70s, watching Bernie Perrant in that for the Flyers. He was just so good. Yeah. But then Fuhrer, had, same thing with Grant Fuhrer. So, all right, let's talk about this project. So you, 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 this is a younger producer that you were working with in, yeah, uh, where's he from? He's from Kelowna. His name's Tyler Hines. Great guy, really dialed in. And, you know, it was a cool story because he'd come to the Grand Fuhrer premiere in Kelowna and he'd come to Ice Guardians back when we could do premieres and do those kind of things before, you know, everything was. Uh, and uh, he just reached out to me and he got my number and email and I make a point. I always try to, if someone's going to take the time and ask good questions and say, look, can you take a look at this? I'll do my best to, it's getting tougher now with three kids and getting busier, but I always try to. And um, we had some great conversations and, you know, always, and he was like, man, like, what can I do for you? And I'm like, no, man, just pay it forward. If some other producer asks you, and I wish I didn't have to go through all the mistakes and all the closed doors when I started, I wish there was a few people that would take the time. And then, you know, the best thing happened. He then just said, Hey, like I'm green lit and I want to make it better. And I want to, I want to learn from you and how to release and do certain things. So I want to bring you on. And I was like, man, that's awesome. Like, of course. And he's like, yeah, so like, I'm going to pay you this. And like, I want you, this is what I'm hoping I can get help from you on. I'm like, absolutely. So I jumped on and, you know, I, I'd only ever helped Don Metz with one other Hockey Canada project. So I hadn't done a lot with Hockey Canada. So it was really good to get my foot in the door there. And, and you know, given all the challenges that we had a director leave because of COVID, he didn't want to go in the bubble and, you know, and having to deal with COVID and the new filming things and right in the heart of it and the tournament almost getting canceled. It was, it was, you know, I, I really think the project turned out fantastic. The three episodes are really compelling and the kids are interesting. You have to watch episode one yourself. Like, and I give all the credit to Tyler. He'd had kind of the six or eight kids he wanted. And I say kids, young men that he wanted to follow uh, and man, we couldn't have picked better characters to really guide this story that just, you know, really made it something special. Cause sometimes when you're dealing with young athletes, they can be very cold, just like, here's my thing. And don't say much, especially hockey players. Cause they're so used to just saying, well, there's no I in team. And you know, like Con Connor McDavid's a perfect example, amazing player. And he's really tough to interview, right? He doesn't give you a lot to work with, but these young men were fantastic and really, really made the project special. Adam, let's just go back a little bit because you, you mentioned the fact that you were, you've given advice to young producers and young people breaking in, young directors. What, what are some of the key things that you try to tell them that they don't know about this business that you wish you had, someone had told you back in the day? I really, something I always do is I always share my budgets and my financials because that's always the part that you're trying to figure out. Like, how does this work? How do I get money? Like, do I borrow? Do I use my own money? Do I use private money? Like, how do I put this together? So I always share how I do that, right? That's the thing that everybody calls me doing like the whiz now. And they're like, oh, Adam's like the tax credit and financing whiz. And I'm like, man, that's scary because 
I barely passed math in high school that I'm the whiz <laughs> now, right? But just because I love being in production and telling great stories. So I just always found a way to really, even though it was hard for me to learn that stuff, found a way. So I always try to tell people the business stuff. And I'm I'm also just very frank and honest, but like I just say that won't work. Like that network you're going to, they're not going to be interested. They have no money. They're not interested in sports stories. Just save people the headache, right? And I think that's the part that I keep getting. I did a panel this year earlier for Ampia that everybody's like, wow, I haven't had someone just be so honest about the process and getting turned down and all that stuff that people really love the transparency and honesty. So I just try to show that with really try to get young producers to understand the business and be very honest and transparent with them because it's a, because our industry looks flashy because it's on TV or you're working with Hockey Canada or you're telling these stories, sometimes it feels unattainable. So I really try to just make sure that you understand the business because then it, the sooner you can treat it like a business and not a hobby, the sooner it will become a source of income in a business for you and not a hobby, right? We often treat it as a hobby and then it will stay a hobby because it's just your hobby. But to make a life out of it and a career, it's got to be, the money's got to make sense. And you got to learn how to do that. And it's what I always call the unmagical part of filmmaking, right? Nobody wants to do government tax credit grants and granting applications. Those things are miserable. They're not fun for anybody. But if they get you funding to put you into production and stuff like this, then they're amazing, right? So, and trust me, nobody is worse at that kind of paperwork than me. I am the worst. I am horrible. So if I can figure out how to do it, anybody if they really want to do it can figure it out because it's just a matter of like all government applications mm -hmm. just going through it and if something's wrong they'll point it out and say this is incorrect we need more information or they need this then you figure out how to do it and there's no excuse for people nowadays because you can google anything and it'll explain it to you so it's like like you know like for and I, I had this like 10 years ago when i wasn't in the film industry and i was still doing sales I literally like I didn't know how to do a proper sales resume. So but I Googled how to do a proper sales resume. And it was like step by step on how to do it. I'm like, oh man. I was like, if you can't figure out how to put together a presentation nowadays with what's available online, you're just being lazy because it's all there. You can have the audio version, the video version, the step-by-step -step version. Like it's all there for anyone to figure out now. Just do you have the willingness to grind it out and figure put it together? So you also also share the financial information, like when you're working on a project too, like with people yeah. that you're working with, like you have a lot of openness and transparency around that. Why do you do that? Because uh, when I started, I just, when I worked with producers, I hated that where it was like, they wouldn't like, when I'm working as a line producer, so then generally I'm like the production manager, mm. like field manager for a job, right? And when you're trying to know what the budget is, so you know what your spending limitations are, and the producer would be like, well, I can't tell you. I'm like, well, I don't know how much I can spend on like travel or like footage or like how much do we have for camera rental? That like, you can have this much. And I was like, man, it'd be so much easier if you just show me the budget, then I would know. I'm not trying to know, I don't really care how much you're getting paid or whatever else, like you should be getting paid a lot. You're the one that put it together. I don't, but our, 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 our industry, I think more than any would be like, well, I'll show you the top sheet or I'll show you a couple line items. And I'm like, what other business can you do that? Like when you're building a house, it'd be like, well, I can only show you what the overall cost is going to be. I can't tell you what, how it's going to get built. Like if you think any other business, it doesn't make sense. But in the film industry, three standards, like not I'm working with, I need to know what is the budget, how much can we pay people? So I wanted to just break that when I got in the industry, and I found it a million times better because when you're working with talent and they want to see like, hey, like, 
you know, now that it's everywhere, how do we make it in the back? Like, you send a passport, you send a budget to show how much it costs, but it, it all makes sense. Like, I think really what a lot of producers were doing is they were ripping people off, and that's why they didn't want to share that information. So I, I wanted to break that kind of culture in the industry, so I'm always happy to share it with people and just show them how it's done. Excellent. Uh, hope at my end there was it was breaking up a little bit there. I hopefully oh. it may not be the case though during mm-hmm. the recording, so it's hard to know. Um, so let's uh, let's get into this project. Which players did you focus on? And uh, just tell me a little bit. Uh, um, I mean, I know from the first episode is Bo Byram, Peyton Krebs, Kirby Doc, and um, we're, we're the main guys. Um, why why some there might be others as well. Why those three? Those I, I have to really give Tyler had done the research on who he thought was going to make the team and who he thought was going to be, you know, crucial to follow. Like we didn't know like anything when you're doing factual information, you didn't know that, you know, Bo Byram was going to end up taking over the captain position for Kirby Doc and that Kirby Doc was going to break his wrist like that. All that kind of stuff just happened. Right. And then we were it was like, oh, we're already following these people. Right. So great. We followed Schneider a lot, too, and Goulet a lot. We followed a lot of these guys. So. Yeah, that's they were right. guys. Yeah, Caden they were just guys that we, we going into it. We thought, you know, and there's a couple other guys that we looked, we thought, um, you know, uh, might follow, and then we just saw their storylines weren't going there. So then we followed the ones that were. But I really got to give credit to Tyler. Those are the ones that he's like. These are the characters I think are going to really have a good tournament, and we're going to get a lot from them. Uh, we wanted to follow what's his name too, but he wasn't even allowed to the tournament. Uh, that Le- Lafrere or whatever that played for the Rangers. Um, oh, Alexis Lafer. Yeah, yeah. Originally, he was on our list too, but then when we found he wasn't going, we we changed it and and shifted. And boy, did we ever find something special with the kids we did, like with Kirby Doc, and you know having the Achilles cut, and then Bo Byram being just oh, I mean, for a young man, like you talk about a future captain in the NHL with how composed he is and how well he take like that guy. That guy could do interviews for NHL teams right now. Like he is just a great charismatic young man that really helped shape episode two and three. Without him, I think we would have been in trouble. That was Peyton Krebs with the Achilles. Uh, yeah, Peyton Krebs right? with the yeah. Achilles and yeah, Bo Byram with the career. But Krebs is an interesting interview too. I've, I've li- I really got to like his character as well. You know, there's kind of a stereotype of the pushy hockey parent. Um, very, very aggressive. Um, maybe a bit nasty, and then the you know the the hockey player who's full of himself or herself. And uh, I heard a, a counter argument to that. It's where the the argument is, yeah, those stereotypes are correct to a point, but the kids who actually succeed and get ahead are often from very stable, um, hardworking, humble families, just very serious people who get after it and um, aren't full of themselves. They're full of hard work and. Um, have pretty good attitudes and that's the only way actually that you can handle the stress and the ups and downs of that kind of life if you if you're not a stable person it beca- it's extremely difficult so this was the counter idea that that that's predominates actually that's the kind of indi- individual that predominates junior hockey it, it, what, what would you say what did you see with these young men i you know what I, I i think that's a great assessment i i really don't think i could agree more um in fact, you know, like, you know, people would often, you'd hear that being like, oh, these spoiled hockey players, this and that. But like after meeting these young men and interviewing them and seeing and how well they handled the COVID thing, like everybody's like, oh, we all dealt with COVID. I'm like, yeah, but not many of you had to train for 
a world tournament in your hotel room for 14 days, right? Like, tell me how you stay motivated there, right? Like they all brought in bikes and we're training and like, you know, they weren't even allowed to see each other. We weren't allowed. And then we had to adjust as filmmakers. We had to be like, well, we can't get cameras in there. So we'll have to get them to record their Skypes. And, you know, they were really good about everything and us bugging them be like, hey, look, we have to show you how to record and we want you to film yourself and let us know what the day in the life is in there. You know, I, I think your assessment there of, you know, families, I think in the long run, the families that aren't raising their kids right surfaces in the players' behaviors down the road, right? They're usually, I mean, I've even started to see it, you know, in my daughter's leagues, right? When you start hearing parents saying politics and this and that, and I'm kind of like, no, man, you're just a crazy parent. Like, I don't <laughs> You don't have to name like, names here, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to draw the names, but like I see like the parents that complain and reach out like, you know, I've raised just on a personal level with my daughter, like with Riley, I've, I've tried to instill like definitely ever since she started playing in Bantam or U15, I'm like, if you have an issue with the coach, that's you. I'm not talking to coaches anymore. Like unless there's a behavioral issue or someone took out their phone and filmed them in the dressing room or something and they're in their underwear, like I'm not getting involved with coaches at this point. To me, that's like, that's you. That's part of to me, that's part of what people need to learn in sports is how to grow and use, like, as if sports don't continue for you and you can't make pros in the NHL level or the collegiate level, hey, then you need to learn life lessons of, like, failure, adversity, overcoming things. And those are the things that I love that sports teach where, like, Riley comes to me with an issue and I'm like, go talk. Well, what do you, what do you need me for? I'm not, I'm not talking to your coach. You, you don't think you're getting enough ice time? Go talk to them. Go show them that you're working hard enough. What, what, what can I do? I, that looks ridiculous. But... I can't believe parents still do that to a frightening level. You know, I think all the way till, I think it's a little less in boys. Maybe I just have experiences. My boys are young. I've only really seen, but I think even when you see in the NHL level, most part for the guys I've interviewed from ice guardians to making Coco here, they're fantastic people. And I think, and their families seem great. And I think that's why their kids are successful. And I would suspect not knowing when you see those kids that are cancers in the room or whatever, or, or players in the NHL, I would suspect that usually you're a product of your environment and probably you came from a household that was pushing you in sports for the wrong reason. And that's why you're now acidic or poisonous for your team once you make the NHL or the pros. So let's talk about the the challenges that this that, that the team faced and you faced in filming them. The first episode is about the training camp period. And, and as you say, they went into quarantine for 14 days. I didn't know, actually, before I watched this film, that all, all the players were kind of pretty much confined to their rooms and had to do everything in the rooms like they were... One time they were doing a little art class and painting pictures. Yeah, like funny. But they were con they were constantly doing things in their room, so they couldn't for for their workout and their exercise. They had to do that in their rooms as well. In their rooms, that's what people don't realize. Like, and then we as filmmaking, like every time we kept getting, like we were worried that we weren't going to get into the bubble with them. But Hockey Canada said, yes, you can have one camera guy, right? Nothing else. And we'll provide you one other camera guy who works with Hockey Canada, and he'll be allowed in like the dressing room and other places because they wanted to keep contamination, everything to a minimum. So we are just thankful that we're like, oh, thank God we're not doing this whole thing with Zoom cameras, right? Like that we can actually, but yeah, once they had an outbreak, they didn't get to leave their rooms. And that's, that's, and that's not me just saying that they didn't leave their rooms for 14 days. Wow. They, and they felt imprisoned because like a lot of them didn't even have windows that opened, right? It was air conditioning. So they were in their room for 14 days. They were allowed to get some additional gifts and stuff dropped off. Like some of them had their PlayStations brought in and stuff like that. But 
then you know they also have to get prepared for a world tournament so they had like a sponsor like peloton brought in bikes and they were but then you know like we show like they even did art things just to keep them sane like 14 days in the same hotel room with no real interaction with anybody like it was pretty tough on young athletes that are used to like being on the ice five days a week and training you know it was really commendable how well they handled it to be honest that's a pretty major handicap for a team especially yeah. playing teams all the european players were playing in their leagues through the fall starting in august yeah they, they had been playing on teams and competitive games and the american players mo- many of them had been playing in the ushl and the um yeah. and college hockey um starting in this in, in august and september as well can't can't it just makes me think what a disadvantage the canadian team was under in that tournament yeah. and how that was compounded by that 14 day and and i know they're putting the best face on it adam yeah but when i think about that i wonder how much i wonder if that had oh. an impact on the final result oh of course how I, I don't know how it couldn't right when you're not skating like you know we had some clips and there are guys saying, well, legs are there, lungs aren't, or lungs are there and legs yeah. aren't. Like it took them just a few, just to get back, right? And when you have them coming out, I think it's in episode two. I can't remember if it, I've watched them all so many, but episode two, they like come out and you can see the genuine on their face when they're just like, oh, fresh air, when they're just getting on the bus, right? Where they're like, we're, we're free, we're out. Oh my God, like we're out of here. Like we get to breathe and get get our skates on and get back on there and yeah, they, they did a tremendous job. Plus, you know, the pressure of Canada. Like, let's be honest, if Canada comes home with anything other than gold, it's considered a failure at first, right? Like, not to these young men, but to the rest of the country. They're like, what? We lost. And so, um, you know, to have that added pressure and then be stuck in, in, in a prison cell, essentially, for, you know, 14 days would be pretty tough. And then, of course, their captain, Kirby Doc, gets, breaks his wrist horribly yeah. breaks his wrist too we cover yeah. that it's disgusting okay all right we bring that in our episode three and we show how bad the break was it's bad really yo how bad? bad dislocated and broken like it was separate like it was like you know like to the point where if you probably yanked on it hard enough you could have pulled his hand off like it was bad <laughs> bad yeah Oh man, how did it happen? Like what happened? It just that weird bump. They kind of go and it's like shoving and just a weird thing. It hit wrong and just twisted and and went. I think it's in episode three. We go okay. into that, how they how they lose Doc and then and then that's when Bo um, takes over because I think he, he was assistant captain, right? So then he becomes yeah. the captain. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the job of the coach, like the, the, the team, uh, was just, I've just been reading Ken, listening to Ken Dryden's uh, The Game again, the audio yeah. version of his great 1970s book, which yeah. if you haven't read it, for every hockey fan should read. It's just so fantastic. He talks about Scotty Bowman's, the main job of the coach, there's a couple, but one of them is to kick away all the crutches because the players are always looking for excuses of why they can't perform. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the job of the coach, according to Dryden, and this is what Bowman focused on, was to get rid of those crutches. Like to, first of all, make the schedule as smooth as possible so there wouldn't be things that would come up that would upset everybody. But then to, like, when they did come up, like, no, that ain't an excuse. Let's get after it. Like to fight through them again and again. And I see that with these coaches. Um, but, that you know, just why, the reality of being ki- these kids cooped up in their, I mean, how many push-ups and sit-ups can you do? And not being just the lack of bonding time that was taken away from that team, um, the lack of skating when they hadn't been skating. This, these are all pretty, uh, these are pretty major factors I can see. 
what what else did you know? Like, so I haven't seen the next two episodes. What are we gonna? What are we, what's in them that are, that is of note, Adam? What, like, what's how does the story unfold? So you're gonna see. Obviously, you're gonna see. We bring up the dock injury, right? We go into detail that and how Bo had to step up. Um, without giving too much, of, like episode three. Obviously, we know how the tournament ends, right? Yes. But we, but we really show you, like again, like if you weren't a fan of these young men, like you will be when you see their interviews because we actually show them and them point out like yeah, I hit the post there and I think that would have shifted. And you see the game differently because they talk about little things. Like they admit where they're like, man, first period, they were all over us. We did not play good. We weren't playing our game. U.S. got those two quick ones. Like, and then the quick one in the second period where it took a weird bounce and the guy just tucked it in. And he's like, and then they talked about a, a few big, like I think Schneider lays a big hit. And then some, and then the momentum shifts, right? And they start getting some momentum, but they just can't capitalize. Like Cousins hits the post. They have a couple other things and then really reflecting about how they had to get um, Bo go up there, uh, you know, afterwards and hand out the medals. Like nobody wants, like, again, like I'm almost tearing up as I'm watching this episode of how well this young man's watching himself have to do that. Right. And he's like, yeah, you know, the guys were kind of teasing me, but it meant a lot to me. And they really knew for, for their age, I guess it shouldn't matter, but they really understood how lucky they were to be able to be playing given the global circumstances of the pandemic. And they really felt that additional pressure. You'll see it in episode two and three that they knew that this wasn't just for them. This was for the country had like, we needed something to watch and be hopeful for. And that was like the only thing on at the time, right? Like the, when yeah. the tournament was on, all sports, I think were canceled. They were one of the first that was going to come. I think maybe basketball was on. That was it. Right. The, yeah. So they knew that they're like, man, we're not playing like we always play for our country. But this year we're playing a little bit more because this is like the only entertainment anybody has. Right. It's a little bit of life of somewhat of normalcy. There's like competitive hockey in real time going on right now. So we talk about that and and, you know, and how people stepped up in certain games and how people, you know, Schneider getting suspended and then Krebs like having a bad game and coming back strong and it really worked out for the drama. You see the characters that we ended up picking had really big moments in the semifinal games and stuff like that where they struggled and then they bounced back and overcoming the adversity. We really go into those personal stories in two and three and watch them go. And then obviously we, we follow where all the guys are now, where they're all, you know, uh, Bo went right to play for Colorado and was playing pretty good. And then Schneider went to New York and Krebs to, to Vegas. And so we kind of touch on them and we touch base with them where they are now. We had to get them again to film from their computers and kind of talk about it. Oh, yeah. We couldn't fly down there and stuff. So we kind of touch on like where they at now and how they feeling about everything. And, you know, you could see all the kids were very thankful that they got to play and uh you know even though it wasn't the result anybody wanted they're just thankful that with what was going on in the world that it didn't get canceled right that the tournament could still go and they could still represent their country so this is on uh, the hockey canada website now and tsn will air it next fall before the world junior tournament probably yeah and we're going to be tyler and the team we're all we we things worked out so good on this one we're going to be working together again and because it's in alberta we'll be doing that tournament again next year. So hopefully we can just go in the arena with fans next year and we don't have to deal with COVID. That would be a nice, but we, we'll, we'll, we'll see. That's, that's what we're hoping. Uh, but yeah, right now it's on the Hockey Canada website. Um, if you, anybody follows my social media, you can find it on there. I shared it on everything and the episodes will be re releasing uh, on the next two Thursdays. So next Thursday, you'll get episode two and the following Thursday, you'll get episode three and they'll all be available for free on the Hockey Canada website. Now you just had the one cameraman in there. 
what was it like for him? He was he run off his feet pretty much. He was well. So we had we had one of our own, yeah. but then hockey that had a guy okay. Jeremy. Yeah, but they were both pretty exhausted because they were in there. Like they actually hockey Canada. Hockey Canada was so great to work with this year. They were really Scott Sam and they were, they were they were fantastic. Where they sent this big thing, like you know Harrison, our camera guy, like he was part of the team and they thanked him on the journey and because he was there, like you got to know, like you're in the line when they're going to eat, when they were allowed to eat, when they finally got to Edmonton, like you know you kept your cohort in your bubble. So Harrison is like, man, he was there with them. They got to know her. There's a cool clip in episode is it episode two or three, but you have Bo come out when they beat the Russians. And he goes and bangs the camera like he gives Harrison a high five through the camera. Like we're going to the gold medal game. Like, you know, he really, I guess if we're looking at the positives from it, he really got connected to the guys because he was in a bubble with them for 65 days. So rather than just being like, oh, these are the documentary guys was like, oh, you're part of our team. Like you've been stuck in quarantine with us too. So that's good. So Adam, you know, as you, as you, as you have mentioned, your daughter, Riley, I think she, what is she, 14, 15 now? 14? She's 14, turning 15 September. Yeah. So, you know, you're, she's becoming an elite female player in Edmonton, very strong player. Um, you're watching this and maybe picking up a few ideas and tips, I'm guessing about the development. Of, what, did, what did you learn about what it takes from, from seeing all the footage and seeing these players? What have you taken from it as a hockey parent and applying it to your own, uh, your own player? I've really taken, and it's something that I think Lauren and I have tried to instill ever since she played for you, Dave, is that, you know, the more I think any person can look in the mirror and look at, and like, instead of, like you said, Scotty Bowman and Ken Dryden's book, try to say, eliminate excuses or crutches. Right. And I, and what I learned from these young guys is like, no matter what was thrown on like Kirby doc getting injured, who they said was like a man playing amongst boys and like the, the, you know, the, the COVID restrictions, everything thrown at them, they had great coaching and they tried to overcome it and try to not say, oh, poor me, or this is the reason they always tried to overcome that. And I try to instill that with Riley being like, anytime there's an issue, Riley, the more you can look in the mirror and say, what can I do to be better? Instead of saying, well, the coach didn't give me ice time or this player did this or this. I'm like, the more you can do that, the more you will get better because nine times out of 10, from what I've experienced, and I never played a high level sports. I boxed competitively, but I didn't play team sports that when you can take it on the chin, I do it in business all the time. If one of my talent, like I deal with high caliber athletes from all walks of sports, from MMA to the more I can just say, if they're upset or not feeling comfortable about something, I can't go, oh, well, my director did this or my camera guy, like that falls on me, right? Like that, we just had this with Breaking Olympia. There was, you know, we had some photos go on social media and there was strict rule not to do that. And it was one of my people from my crew you know, and I got the message and I said, guys, that's on me. I'm not pointing the member at my crew because I should have been clear that that's on me, right? You should always, when I think these guys, this is the life lessons I learned from this and, and that I try to instill in Riley, the more you can look in the mirror and say, what can I do to be better instead of pointing fingers and making excuses? I think just anything in life, you'll be more successful, especially high level, high level athletes. Well, I can vouch for like the, the uh, thing you were saying about making Riley talk to the coaches. I remember one uh, one conversation she had with me where where Lauren was in the background, but she, you know, you the, the, Lauren made Riley go up and address this, and she, I don't know if she'd done it before, but no. she was pretty nervous. 
Uh, yeah, but she raised the thing that was bothering her, and we had a good discussion about it. So good for you for doing that. That's a that's a good lesson for any minor hockey parent. And as you know, because you've coached, right? She's quiet. She's not a loud and aggressive play. Like she's aggressive on the ice, but she's not. She's not vocal. She's not cocky. She's not that. So it's tough for her. But we're like Riley. That's something you have to overcome because when you go like the more competitive teams, like and and you it was a great conversation she was like oh that was so much easier than i thought it was going to be I was like, <laughs> and I, I my dad taught me this and i try to instill this in her this that you know you put those pressures on yourself like it can be a conversation with a coach or a talk with a boss or an employee that you're dreading you put these these pressures on yourself and nine times out of ten it's way worse in your head than when you just get it done and you just tackle it right away and you're like oh that was a cakewalk. I made this. It was going to be so difficult. It was going to be tough. And I always remind Riley of that if she has something she's kind of dreading to talk with, I'm like, Riley, nine times out of 10, you're making it worse in your head than it's going to be. And when you actually deal with it, you're like, like when she talked to you that time, because it was all about you had her on defense so that she could get a bit more ice time, but she didn't want to play defense anymore. Right. She yeah. just wanted to be better. And when she talked to you, and you're like, oh, Riley, like, you should have told me, no problem. We'll put you. And she was like, oh, that was so easy. I just talked to him. I was like, yes. <laughs> if you talk to people, nine times out of 10, they're pretty easy to deal with. And it's not, you put those, it's interesting. We always put that, the word I'm looking at, conflict or um, resistance in our head. We always think that resistance is going to be worse than it's going to be. And maybe the odd time it is, but I can tell, I can say from example, nine times out of 10, the resistance I put on myself is much tougher than when. So I usually try to tackle those things first thing. Like when I something's bugging me, I'm like, I get into the office. I'm like, let's get those things that have been bugging me off my table right away. And then the rest of the day seems easy. All righty, man. Yeah, Riley, we had, she had been the star center and I wanted to get, we just needed her on the ice more. So I wanted to have her on defense. Yeah. And uh, she was, she, she uh, wanted to stick with center. So it was a good conversation. Yeah. All righty, Adam, it was great talking to you. Uh, excellent work on this. Um, yeah. And uh, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, David. Thank you for always covering my stories. I really appreciate, you know, you've written some great articles about me and my team in the past, and I really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. And, and reaching out right away to cover this and checking out the work, I, I, it, means, it means a lot to me. It's great and inspirational for I'm sure all Edmonton documentaries that you're you're having the success that you're that you're having out of Edmonton. Alrighty, thanks yeah. again for listening. Yeah. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>